Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles with you, you're going to be in Daniel chapter number 8 today. Daniel chapter number 8 and uh, trying to do a better recording. We had our services outside uh, this past Sunday and trying to do a better recording on this and so to go with our series. But if you've got your Bibles, we'll be in Daniel chapter number 8. And uh, I want to walk with you real quick before we get into that and start talking about what we, uh, where we're going to be at. I wanted to walk with you through uh, Daniel chapter 1. If you remember back, just to recap real quick, if you remember, we started uh, in Daniel chapter 1 with Daniel being brought out into captivity uh, by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. We know that the Bible says that he was just a young boy at that time, and we had uh, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, which we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, in Daniel chapter number 1, we even learned that God is faithful in the most difficult times because Daniel, he told them and he asked the king of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz, he said, you know, can, if it would be okay and if it would be pleasing, he didn't want to eat the meat or drink the wine from the king's table. And the reason he didn't want to do it because he would defile himself. And so he was a Jew and didn't want to do that. And so God proved himself to be faithful to Daniel and those other boys by uh, allowing them to be able to eat just the vegetables and to drink the water. And they were still as strong and looked good. And then we moved to Daniel chapter number two a few weeks back. And in Daniel chapter two, we learned about this man by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was uh, one of the greatest rulers of Babylon. He wasn't the first king of Babylon. We know that uh, Babylon and its empire and its kind of uh, kingdom itself started back in Genesis chapter 10, verse number 10, in the Tower of Babel. But when you look at chapter number 2, you'll see that Nebuchadnezzar is probably the most remembered king of the Babylonian empire. <clears throat> and Nebuchadnezzar had this dream that God gave him, God sent him. And this dream was about, a, about an image that looked like a man that had a head of gold and a breastplate of silver and had a thigh or torso of bronze and then legs of iron and toes of iron and clay mixed. And it was the image set up that made it look like a man or man kind and uh uh, God was telling him that, that he said there was a stone that came out uh, that wasn't hewn with man's hands and that stone hit the image and it broke it uh, and he didn't know what the dream was and so God sent Daniel to interpret the dream not, on to, not only to interpret the dream but he even told Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was and then interpreted the dream for him and God proved to be faithful and where we thought maybe the, the word of God is now going to shift and go to these uh, uh, Gentile kingdoms or this worldly system and, and where we thought well maybe God's going to be moving in them we see in chapter number 3 that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a big huge image uh, that was reflecting himself, that was an image made of gold. And he told all the people, said, if you bow down, when you hear the music, you bow down and worship the image. And basically, Nebuchadnezzar became very prideful, knowing that he was the image of the head of gold. And so <clears throat> he wanted to be worshipped. And the three Hebrew boys, we know about them. We know that they didn't worship. They didn't bow down during that time. And so Nebuchadnezzar had the furnace heated up seven times hotter than it ever was. And they threw him into the fire. But we know that there was a fourth one that was there with them that we believe to be the Son of God. And so God proved himself faithful in Daniel chapter number 3. And then we move to Daniel chapter number 4. And, and you have this scene of Nebuchadnezzar and all of the pride that he had. And God said, you're not going to walk in pride anymore but I'm going to make you live like one of these wild animals. And so God uh, afflicted him and afflicted him so much that Nebuchadnezzar lived out in the wilderness for seven years. He, he ate grass. The dew uh, fell upon his back, upon the hairs of his body. He grew fingernails like a bird's claws and stuff. But finally, uh, he said that he was going to be cut down, but that he would come and he would rise again out of the stump. And if you look at that, Nebuchadnezzar finally realized, he said, Daniel's God is the God of all gods. He's the God of all kingdoms, that it's because of God that kingdoms and kings rise and fall. And we thought that when we get to Daniel chapter number 5, we would see something good. But we have this man by the name of Belshazzar, that's the king of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, as he comes into play, uh, excuse me, not the king of the Medes and the Persians, he was the king of Babylon also. Uh, and as he was the king of Babylon, his, his, his uh, 
other king, uh, Nabonidus, we know, we've learned about all these things, and Nabonidus was the king uh, truly of Babylon, but Belshazzar was his son and was over the province of Babylon while Nabonidus was out. If you look at it, it says that Belshazzar threw a wild party, that they were drinking, fornicating, took the vessels. He said, listen, go down there to the storehouse and get the vessels that my father Nebuchadnezzar had gotten from Israel from when the temple was destroyed. And when he went in there and got those vessels, they were drinking out of them, but he sobered up very quick and, uh, because he saw a man's hand that was writing on the wall and God was writing something out for him. And it says that he even his loins were loosed and his knees began to knock together and that he was terrified at what he saw. And uh, God reminded him that no one rises and falls without him being in charge of it all. And so it's cool to see that God's still faithful. We moved to chapter number 6. When we got to chapter number 6, we understand that Daniel was told that he couldn't pray. The, the Medes and the Persians now, uh, King Darius is uh, residing over the Medes and the Persians. And we know that he says uh, they passed a law that no one could pray or ask petition of a king or their God for 30 days except for Darius. And the Bible says that Daniel went ahead and he prayed morning and at noon and at night. And God proved to be faithful. The people took Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. <clears throat> but the next morning, the king went to the edge of the lion's den. And they pulled back the stone. And he hollered down in there. And he says, oh, Daniel, has your God been able to save you? And he said, oh, king, live forever. So God is faithful through all of this. We started in Daniel chapter number 1, understanding in verse 1, all the way to Daniel chapter 2 and verse number 4, that God was speaking and Daniel was writing in the Hebrew language because God's trying to prepare Daniel and those young men, those young um, Israelite exiled slaves. He's trying to prepare them and say, look, uh, you need to know that I'm going to be faithful in all things. But then in Daniel chapter 2, verse number 5, all the way through Daniel chapter number 7, the end of that verse, we look at that and we know that they were speaking in another language, or Daniel was writing in another language, in the language of Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonians. And when he ends in chapter 7 and verse 28, he ends with that language. Daniel chapter 7, it took us two whole weeks to get through that. And Daniel 7 was one that was probably a little bit more difficult because now Daniel has a dream. And he says, the dream that I had was all the way back in the first year of King Belshazzar that was the king of the Medes and, uh, excuse me, the king of Babylon. All of these things. He says, the dream that I had was just like the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, but it was a little bit different. The difference in that dream was is that Nebuchadnezzar received the dream or the vision of God and it talked about mankind. It, it, it kind of glorified who they thought that they were and God said a stone was going to hit it and that it was going to be a stone that's not hewn with hands and that it would be a fall and a great fall thereof but in Daniel chapter number seven Daniel shares about a dream that he had but it was in the light or the view or the eyesight of God you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream was about a man with a head of gold and silver and bronze and and iron but Daniel's dream was about four beasts that would rise up out of the sea. These four beasts that rose up out of the sea, he said he saw the first one, and it looked like a lion that had eagle's wings. And he said, and I watched it, I beheld it, until the eagle's wings were plucked off, and, uh, and a man's heart was given unto it. And Daniel understood that that was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was uh, in authority and in power and had uh, a majestic uh, a majestic empire or kingdom, but God plucked his wings off of him and humbled him, and a man's heart was given unto him. And then he said, I beheld that after that, that beast rose out of the sea. He said, I saw a bear rise out of the sea that had three ribs in its mouth and was leaning on one side. And, and uh, then he said, I saw another beast that was like a leopard that had four heads and wings like the fowl of the air. And then he said, I saw another beast that had ten horns and iron teeth and what it didn't crush with its teeth that it stamped out with its feet. And so Daniel saw all of this stuff, and we knew that the interpretation was it was four kingdoms that would rise, that it would be the Babylonians, it would be the Medo-Persian Empire or the Media and the Persian Empire, it would be Greece, Alexander the Great being that swift conqueror that was that leopard with four heads and, and bird uh, wings like a bird, and then that last one being Rome. And so Daniel saw this stuff and it troubled him to the point where it took two Sundays for us to get through this. 
He was so troubled in his heart that it made him sick and all of these other things. And now we're going to be picking up today with Daniel chapter number 8, and it's going to be talking about this ram and this goat. If you kind of look in the NFL style, it's the rams versus the goats, you know. But looking at this, you would say, what does this have to do with anything? Um, Brother Steve, this chapter in this Bible here, it seems like we should skip over it. But we need to be encouraged to know that we need to preach everything. We need to preach everything concerning the Scriptures. And when we do this, we will always be true to the Word of God. <clears throat> if we get into the habit of only preaching the things that sound good, that make us feel good, <clears throat> that kind of give us these promises and stuff, and we skip over these difficult passages, then we're going to do that the rest of the time in our life. And we're going to begin to have this attitude that most modern Christians have today, and it's that they're never going to go through suffering or through trial or through anything at all. Daniel had to share <clears throat> this in chapter 8. When we get into chapter 8, we are now moving back to the Hebrew language. And some people go, why did Daniel speak Hebrew and then turn around and write it in Aramaic and then turn around and rewrite the rest of it in the Hebrew language? And some people have tried to speculate over it. And the most easiest way that I understand this is that the rest of this book is going to deal with the Hebrew nation. It's going to be dealing with the prophecies concerning just Israel, the holy city of Jerusalem, the people of God, the Israelites. And so God told Daniel and led him to write it in this Hebrew language. From chapter 2 to chapter 7, it dealt with Gentile nations. And Gentile nations needed to understand where they stand with God or where their stance is with God. And so it was written in the Aramaic language and stuff. And so the easiest way for me to understand it is just to know that God's going to be dealing with his people. So some of you may be tempted to say, well, then why do we even need to learn this if it's going to be dealing with the Israelites and the people of Israel? And the reason that we need to learn these things is because although it's not exactly written to us, it's good for us. If we don't learn from the Israelites and how they said that they were God's people and they were following God, but yet they didn't and they went away, then, then we're not going to learn the lessons that we need to know to go, hey, we need to stay faithful to the Lord. It is not by our faithfulness that we are saved or that we are redeemed. It is by what Christ has done on the cross at Calvary and his resurrection out of the grave is the reason we stand in salvation today. But we need to know what we're standing upon and we need to have faith in that and we need to live in an obedient life to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that brings us up, as we've been talking about, to Daniel chapter 8, and some of the things that we want to share today. I'm going to kind of go through the scriptures real quick. Some of the things that we want to share today, I think we're going to break it out in about maybe five things, something like that. You're used to it by now, so just hang in there for an hour. The first thing that we're going to be talking about today is the place of this vision, the place that God gave this vision. If you would, look in your Bibles with me at Daniel chapter number 8 and verse number 1. The Bible says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of If you look at this scripture right here, these two scriptures, the Bible says, first of all, that it was in the third year of Belshazzar that was the king during that time. So from chapter number 7 and him revealing the dream that he had about the four beasts to chapter number 8, we understand Daniel is at least taking us at least two years into the future. He's taking us two years up to date. And so looking at this, you go, well, well, what was going on, and why did God do this? If you, even if you look back at these scriptures, look back with me at verse number 2 that may be up there on your screen. He says that I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw the vision that he was by the river of Ulea. If you look at that scripture, you go, what's going on? I thought Daniel was in Babylon. 
And Babylon is in what we would understand today to be modern-day Iraq. But when Daniel got this vision, he says that it was like he was carried away in this. Just like the Bible speaks about in Ezekiel 37, that Ezekiel was carried out into the valley. In the midst, there was dry bones laid out there. God was trying to, to speak to Daniel about something, and I believe that he's taking him full circle. As a matter of fact, this is probably in this area in the palace of Shushan, in the province of Elam, by the rivers of Ulai. This is probably about 220 miles away from where Daniel actually was in Babylon. And so I don't know if it was in his heart, if it was in his mind, but it was in the vision that God showed him. He took him back to this place. But what's very important is I want you to see that it says that God took him by the river of Ulai. And this river, and the rivers in the Bible, just as in the Garden of Eden, uh, the Euphrates, the Tigris, the Pisan, all these rivers that were there, uh, we know that <clears throat> that's in the modern area today that we know of Iraq. Uh, but in this place where God took Daniel, it's kind of like in the area of modern-day Iran. And so Daniel is at this place, and people say, well, that, what's God going to do? I want you to listen to this quote from someone that's very, very good, um, that teaches us that God always forewarns or prepares his faithful people. God's not left us in the dark about anything, but he prepares us and he forewarns us about his judgment and he foretells us about his salvation. Listen to this quote. It says, The faithful were informed beforehand of these grievous and oppressive calamities to include them to look, excuse me, to include them and to look up to God when oppressed by such extreme Darkness. The faithful people of God must feel and must see the tremors of the earthquake before the darkness comes. So many people and biblical scholars wonder why in the world that God took Daniel to this place at this time. But just as the scriptures tell us that all creation came from this area in the beginning... God's taking Daniel to this place to show him the culmination of things are going to happen in this place also. So God brings him full circle. And what's amazing about God is, is that the scriptures declare to us that he tells us the end from the beginning. And so many times we're not prepared because we didn't listen to God. Uh, the disciples... They didn't understand what happened when they saw Jesus' resurrected body. And Jesus told them plainly, I told you that in three days I would rise again, that I would suffer many hands of, of uh, suffer many things in the hands of sinners. I would be crucified and buried. And third day, he, said, he even said, I gave it to you in illustrations that would destroy this temple, but in three days I would build it again. And so, so many times we're not preparing ourselves for what is going to happen because we're not listening to the forewarnings or the preparation of the Lord. It's kind of like this. Scientists, for years and years, many of them looked at what they call foreshocks, um, not an aftershock of an earthquake. Uh, seismologists, all this, they looked at what was called foreshocks. And they would say that if we had a <clears throat> 2.0 up to a 3 point something, they were always in, in, in past times saying that <clears throat> those small tremors or those small precursors and foreshocks, that they were leading up to something bigger. But now seismologists say that we can't really go by that because it's not 100% foolproof because we don't know if it is a foreshock or if it's an aftershock. And so now they don't judge it by foreshocks because they don't know if it happened. Now here's what they do know. If they had two days earlier a three magnitude of an earthquake or a, a four shock that shows up on the, uh, on, the, on the charts, and then two or three days later they had a six point or a seven point two or something like that, then they classify the one before that as a four shock, but they don't really understand it until the big one, so-called, has to happen or takes place. So many people are treating the Bible in that same manner, and we can't. We don't have a, a system of meteorology or seismology or any of these other things. We, we're, not, we're not trying to guess at these things and trying to pinpoint these things. We have a book that actually, if you look at world history... Daniel prophesied about these things that would happen in these four beasts that would rise up out of the sea. His prophecy 
actually from God came true to the T of everything and even not only said what they were going to be, but he even described their character of how they would live out the lion and the eagle's wings and the majestic ruling of Babylon. The bear and the ribs and the strength of the Medes and the Persians lifted up on one side saying that the Persian Empire was stronger than the Media Empire. It happened exactly like was told. And so now what God is about to do with Daniel, he takes him to this place and God's laying out a vision, a dream to him, an understanding. Because of chapter 7, Daniel was still disturbed about the matter. Let me read to you in, the, in chapter 7. Listen to what it says in verse 28. Hitherto is the end of the matter, and as for me, Daniel, my cognitations much troubled me. He said, the faults of my mind much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. And so now, two years have passed, and Daniel is still struggling with God. Show me what you're trying to teach me. Help me to understand it better. And so God now is going to give this vision to Daniel. He takes him to the place in Shushan in the palace, which is the province of Elam, right by the rivers of Ulea, and he tells him all the things that are about to take place. Look at number two. The point number two today is let's look at the participants of this vision. The, the, the roles or the people that are playing out this thing. The first one that we see in participating in this is the ram. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says, Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. If you look at that scripture, it says that he saw this ram on one side of the river. That this ram stood before the river and that this ram had two horns. He said one of the horns was taller or higher than the other. And he said, and the taller one or the higher one, he said, it came up last. It came, <clears throat> in other words, as they grew together, he says the first one came and then the second one came and the second one that came out grew up higher than the other because it came out last. And he's trying to understand this and he says that, that he saw this ram pushing west and toward the north and toward the, uh, excuse me, uh, toward the south so that no beast would stand before him. And he's talking about the, the Medes or the Media and Persia Empire, the Medo-Persian uh, period. And he's talking about how they came in strong like this ram. And he says one of them was higher than the other, showing that the Persian Empire was stronger. What's amazing about this is that when they would go into battle, when the Persian army would go out into the battle, you know what would lead them into the battle? It was a goat. I would have probably picked a lion or a big, huge tiger or a gigantic elephant. I would have probably not picked the goat or, the, excuse me, the ram. Uh, but the ram led them out into the battle there. It was the symbol. It was the image of them. It was talking about their strength and how that they would come and they would attack. And the Persia Empire came up last, but it was stronger because we know <clears throat> King Cyrus being part of that Persian Empire. And he was the king of Persia and he was stronger. But as that was laid on one side, look at the second participant, and it's the goat. Look with me at verse number 5. The Bible says this, And as I was considering, he says, in other words, this is cool, he says, And as I was looking at that one, considering everything, and was thinking, Wow, look at that horn higher than the other one. He said, A he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn, between his eyes. Look at that scripture with me. It says that the he-goat came from the west and as this Grecian empire swept in and as they came in, it says that he came in so fast that it seemed like the goat didn't touch the ground. Now, I've seen a lot of goats running and I've seen a lot of goats moving around, but I've never seen one fast enough to where it seemed like it didn't touch the ground. He says, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. That notable horn, church, is Alexander the Great. 
It is told in world history that Alexander the Great was one of the most swiftest, one of the most speediest or fastest conquerors that ever was. That he came in at such a young age and so quick, and he conquered so much in a short amount of time. It says that they they literally pictured him as though he swept down from heaven like one of the gods and conquered everything. Daniel said it was like a goat that didn't touch the ground. And it says that it was a notable horn. It was something that you could significantly point out. Alexander the Great, his lifespan was from 356 B.C. to 323. He passed away in his 30s, but during that time, he was one of the strongest of all. All of the Grecian false gods, the gods of Greek, you know, Apollos, Athena, all of these gods that came in with all of them, they they thought that they had the whole world conquered because they worshipped all of these things and that the reason they had power was because of that. But look at what happens. The Bible says there's this ram on one side with two horns that represents Medes and the Persians. He says, there's this other one on the other side that's a he-goat that comes in like it's not touching the ground. It has one significant horn between his eyes. And then the Bible says the participants now are going to be in a battle. Look with me at verse number 6. It says, and he came unto the ram that had the two horns. Talking about the goat. Ran to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen stand before the river. And he ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler. Against him, talking about anger, indignation, hatred. He says against him, and he smote the ram and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great. Stay right here with me on this scripture and keep it on the screen here for just a moment. It says that this goat came in with such power and such fury that it broke the horns off of that kingdom. In other words, it took the authority off of that kingdom. It says that Alexander the Great came in so swift, so fast, so strong that he overtook the Media Persia Empire. And when he overtook that, look at what the scripture says. Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great. And when he was strong, it says in that scripture that the great horn was broken off. While he was strong, when he was strong, when this this goat and its empire was in its strongest time, it said the great horn that was notable, it was broken. Just like Alexander the Great's uh, uh, rule, just like his kingdom or his kingship, as soon as he got to where he was the greatest and he overtook the Persia empire, Immediately he was broken off. And now look at what the scripture says. It says, And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. It says that when the great one was broken off, that this he-goat seemed to grow out four more horns in the place of that one. That's amazing to think about. It's amazing to look at because if you understand world history, you would know, especially about Alexander the Great, that when he was killed, when he died, not killed, but when he died, when he was done with, that they didn't know what to do with the empire. They didn't know where to put the position of power. And so they took all of his authority, and instead of bringing in one king, one great ruler like Alexander the Great, they gave it to the four greatest generals of Alexander. They gave it to Ptolemy. They gave it to Seleucus. They gave it to Cassander. They gave it to Lysimus. If you look at that, you go, wow, what do you mean? The Bible told Daniel that this was God told him this was going to happen. Our world history tells us that it happened exactly like that. And in the provinces, listen, they gave Seleucus portion of the empire. His portion was to go into Syria and to be ruler over Babylon, the Babylonian areas. They gave a portion to Ptolemy. His portion was to the Egyptians and down in Egypt. They gave a portion to Cassander. He was over Macedonia and Greece. And then the last one, Lysimus, they gave him Thrace and Asia Minor. He was a ruler over them. And the Bible says that all this stuff was going to happen. Daniel had not seen this happen yet. And the reason we get so excited is because we have seen it because we're looking back 
toward those things. The Bible says that these participants are going to be there literally. And we know because of truth that we have today that it happened just like God said it was going to happen. So you know what that does? That proves to us that God himself and his word is faithful. It proves it. Look at the next portion right here. Let's look at the person of this vision. <clears throat> the person of this vision. You say, Brother Steve, we looked at the participants of it all. But you remember, Daniel was not struggling with what he saw about the gold head or the lion with the eagle's wings. He didn't struggle with Babylon because he saw that. <clears throat> he wasn't struggling with the bear with the three ribs or the Medes and the Persians, you know, that ram that had the two horns. He didn't struggle with that. He wasn't even struggling in a difficult manner after the four-headed leper with bird wings and all of that. He wasn't struggling with all of that because he could see that those things were on the rise. What Daniel struggled with was what he saw in the last beast. He struggled with the vision of this iron-teethed, tin-horned creature that he just, not, he just could not understand. He couldn't get it in his mind. Also, church, listen to me. God is about to give Daniel a precursor. He's literally about to give him a foreshock in the earthquake that's going to happen. He's giving him a warning, a forewarning, but he's giving him a precursor. If anybody can see this, it should be the people that call themselves the body of Christ in the past year to a year and a half that we've endured. If anybody could understand, God lays out the things before us and he teaches it to the faithful and he shares it with them so that we could prepare people for the coming of Jesus. We have a whole New Testament book that is dedicated, church, to the fact that we need to help people to prepare because Jesus is coming. Like the song says, people get ready, Jesus is coming, soon we'll be going home. We need to prepare people. We ought to be the people that blows the trumpet of warning, but also shouts the trumpet of salvation and to help these people understand it. <clears throat> God's about to reveal something to Daniel that is going to be very, very difficult, and it's the person of this vision. Look with me at Daniel chapter number 8. Look with me at verse number 9. The Bible says, And out of one of them came forth a little horn. Stop for just a moment as you look at that scripture. I, I tend to want to point this way, but I think it's above you now. So I'll go, it's right up here above you. Out of one of them came forth a little horn. What do you mean? It goes all the way back to verse number 8 where he said that the great horn Alex, Alexander the Great was broken. Four generals stood up in his place as four different kings over four different portions of the kingdom. And now God says, Daniel, out of one of those four kingdoms, he said, another little horn is going to rise up. He said, another person of authority is going to rise up. And look at what it says about this person. And he's very precise about it. He says, this person is going to wax exceeding great. He's going to come in and try to conquer toward the south toward the east, but look at the difference in the scripture. He says these words, and toward the pleasant land. He says when he comes in, he's going to drive all the inhabitants, what? Toward the south, toward the east, and toward Israel. He's got his eyes set on the people of God, and he is coming strong. Look at verse number 20. And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself, even to the prince of the host. And it says, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given unto him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Then, behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulea, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. God sent his angel to give Daniel understanding. <clears throat> 
So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep upon my face or on my face toward the ground. But he touched me and set me upright, and he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed... Daniel, the end shall be. The ram which you sawest having two horns, look at what the scriptures say, are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat or the he goat, the hairy goat, is the king of Grecia, talking about Alexander the Great. And the great horn that, excuse me, is between his eyes is the first king. And the Bible says that in the latter time, or excuse me, and in his power shall be mighty, but look at this, but not in his own. Let, let me find out where I'm at. Let me get back to where uh, I need to be in verse number 22. Now, that king being broken off, the, let me read verse 21 again if we can go back to it. Look at verse number 21. <clears throat> it says that, uh, verse 20, the ram that thou sawest, Having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that king being broken off, or that horn being broken off, whereas four stood up for it, he said four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation. But look at these words, but not in his power. He says that it won't be in the same power of Alexander the Great, and they won't stand in their own power, but look what it says. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, it says a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but look at this, but not in his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart. And look at these words with me. And by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of peace, or excuse me, prince of princes, but he shall be broken without peace hand. If you see that scripture real quick, I know it was a lot to cover and going back and we're going to try to break it down each one of them and stuff real, real quick. <clears throat> the Bible says that Alexander the Great, the horn was broken off. It says four others came up in its place. It says, but another smaller, a little horn came up out of one of them. And out of that Seleucid empire, there is this king that arose on the scene. He, he, and when he arose on the scene, he arose really, literally, he was trying to rise in his own power, but he was being driven by Satan. He was being fueled by what the book of Revelation called the dragon or the old serpent. That's why over twice in these scriptures that we read in this last part, it says that he would rise up but not in his power. He would rule but not in his power. And what's going on is there is this satanic power that is coming up. The Bible says that this man despised the Jews. He tried his best to stamp out Judaism with all of his might. He despised it in such a way that he comes into the temple at a certain time and does these things. And real quick, real quick I want to kind of walk through all of this with you, looking at the Jewish history. <clears throat> in about 580 B.C., the Bible tells us and Jewish history tells us that the Babylonians destroyed the temple. They came in and they destroyed the temple. Jeremiah foretold this. He prophesied that these things are going to happen. After 70 years of being in captivity to King Cyrus, or excuse me, in the Babylonian captivity, King Cyrus steps onto the picture, the man that was the leader of the Persian Empire, and he allows all of those that were exiled there to go back to their home countries and their homelands. And when Israel went back to their homelands, their first thing was, is we need to rebuild the temple. We need to rebuild the wall. That's where we look at the book of Ezra. We look at the book of Nehemiah. And we see these things that are beginning to happen. And as they rebuild the temple, <clears throat> eventually around 322 B.C., Alexander the Great, he comes through and he conquered the area and Judea and all of that. And whenever he died, he, his, his empire was split into these different areas. And Israel 
happened to be located right between the Syrian and the Egyptian or the Greek or the land area, the sub-empires. And so uh, Syria and the Grecians fought so much around Israel for over 200 years. It was just always a battle that was going on. But in about seven, or excuse me, uh, 171 to 170 B.C., there was this guy that came on the scene. God tells Daniel about him in Daniel chapter number 8. And he says that this person is going to magnify himself to the very host of heaven. It says this person that comes on the scene is even going to think that he could battle against the prince of all princes, talking about Jesus himself, the Son of God. That he thought himself so great that he thought he could sweep the stars and step upon them. And where would he get such an idea like that? Where would this man come up with this theology or this kind of thought process that he could do those things. Satan, that came from no other than Satan. The Bible says that Satan was an angel and that he swung his tail as that dragon, that he took out a third of the stars of heaven, talking about the angels of heaven, and they fell down with him. This man is being led by Satan and the false gods of this world. His name is Antiochus IV. When he comes on the scene, he comes in with so much pride, especially when he begins to be great. In about 170 to 171 B.C., or 171 to 170 B.C., he gets to this place where he thinks that he is above all things. And he comes in trying to preach peace unto the Israelites. He comes in smooth-talking them, trying to woo them over and to bring them in and all of this stuff. But the Bible says that he specifically told him for how long is this going to happen, and we're going to get to there in a minute, 2,300 days. He says, but at the 1,150th days, he's going to come in, he's going to do these horrible things. And if you study Antiochus IV, you would understand that he also self-proclaimed himself to not only be Antiochus IV, but he called himself Antiochus IV Epiphanes. You say, what would that mean? Well, he was actually declaring himself to be God because it would be Antiochus Theos Epiphanes. And he was placing himself above all of this. This name actually means this, that he is the visible God or that he is the God that should be glorified. Now, the Israelites called him Antiochus IV Epimenes. And you say, well, what would be the difference in that? Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes declared himself to be the God who is visibly seen. He was trying to declare himself as Jesus, the very Son of God. (laughs) But the Israelites called him Antiochus Epimenes because they said he's Antiochus, the crazy one, or the madman, or the one that's just absolutely lost his mind. In 168 B.C., which is about three years, three and a half years after Antiochus came in into Jerusalem, declaring himself that he's going to be ruling in this area and that he has power. Remember, he was the little horn that came out of the Seleucid Empire, just like the Bible says. He went into the temple that was rebuilt, that they worshipped their God there, the God of all gods, Jehovah. He went into that temple and he brought in Zeus, a false Greek god, and placed him in the middle of that, in the Holy of Holies, declaring that Zeus is God, that Antiochus Epiphanes is God, and he took a pig, which he knew was unclean to the Jewish people, and he slaughtered the pig, and he offered the blood of that pig, that unclean animal, upon the altar there, and he desecrated the temple of God. Some people think that he was the actual Antichrist, and that we in the New Testament get these scriptures wrong because the Antichrist has already come in the form of Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. But you need to understand that we know that that can't be true because the Bible even speaks to that just a little bit more. The Bible says, <clears throat> that, uh, and even uh, Jewish history talks about this, we would know that the Jewish people were tired of Antiochus and his rule. We would know that they were so fed up with it that they began to revolt against this. The Judah Maccabees, uh, even in the second book of Maccabees, in the Jewish history books, they declare in chapter number 9, verses 5 and 6, talking about Antiochus. 
You remember the Bible says that this one would be raised up. You remember that in verse number 25, that you could probably see if you'd put it back up there for us, in verse 25, it says that he was going to stand up against the prince of princes. But look at what it says up there. It says, but he shall be broken without hand. In other words, he said he's going to be dealt with, but it's not going to be through the judgment of mankind or humanity or war or an arrow or a spear or a sword that would get him. He will be broken without hand. God's judgment's going to fall on him. And in the second book of Maccabees, in chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, it actually gives the story of what happened to Antiochus. He just went along his way, and it says that he bowed over suddenly with such pain in his stomach. They said that he He was afflicted by God's judgment with something that happened within his bowels to literally that he poured out such a putrid smell and even worms came from his body. His own men, his own kingdom people, his servants would not even bear his body up because of the stench and because of the worms. He was afflicted by God. And did you know that Antiochus IV Epiphanes tried his best to find a so-called repentance on earth that he wrote a letter to the Jewish people, that he wrote a letter saying, you know, please, if I could pass from this death and and not have to die, that, that I would go back and take everything back if you would just honor my son and do all these other things. And I want you to see this last point with us this morning. I want you to see more than anything that Daniel saw the place of this vision. He saw the participants, the goat and the ram and all of this stuff. He saw this person that was going to step on the scene and, and have some kind of answer to everybody he saw all of this as a warning from God but it caused pain in the heart of Daniel he saw what was going to happen to the children of Israel look at verse 13 go back with me in Daniel chapter 8 verse number 13 look back up into that scripture it says then I heard one saint speaking and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake how long shall the vision or excuse me, be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot of Gentile people is what he's talking about. It says, And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And look at verse number 26. And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told was true, wherefore shut thou up the vision for it shall be for many days. Many people look at this and they think that the Antichrist has come in the form of Antiochus. <clears throat> There's many people that believe that that's over with, that we don't need to be concerned about that anymore. Even the Jewish people today, you may not understand this, but on the 25th day of the month of Kislu, uh, which would be in our December, they went out and Judah Maccabee actually led a revolt against against Antiochus and all of those that were in there. And now the Jews celebrate every Christmas season. They celebrate what we understand in their terms called Hanukkah. They take a nine-branched menorah lampstand. They light the candle in the center, separating the four and the four, being eight days. They take the one in the middle, and they call it the servant. And they go through for eight days. They take that one candle and light another one. And then they light another one. And for eight days, they celebrate what is called the Festival of Lights. Even in the days of Jesus, they did this. The book of John tells us about it. That they celebrate this festival of lights because they say that whenever they finally took back the temple, when they took the false god Zeus out of there, they cleaned up the pig blood and the desecration of the temple. When they finally took it back, they tried themselves to get the priesthood in order to get all these things established again, and they did not have the provisions to go out because it was all ransacked and everything was destroyed. They didn't have the provisions for the oil for the lamp. But the priest said, light it anyway. And did you know that that oil is told that it lasted for eight days until the provisions were made? It was God showing them, my light will be with you. My presence will be with you. And that's why they celebrate Hanukkah. But that was a forewarning of what was going to take place. Just like Jesus, listen, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament lamb and the sacrifice, that was a pre 
precursor of what Jesus was going to be, the perfect lamb. The temple and the tabernacle of the Old Testament days is exactly a picture, a symbol of what we have now in salvation. And so why is it so important for us to understand this? Because some people are going to say, those days are past, the Antichrist has come, stop trying to put fear in people, it's over with. But if you would, I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter number 24, and I believe that if we hear something from Jesus' mouth, it explains it better. Look at what he said about it. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness and unto all nations. And then shall the end come. We live in the days where we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of his wonderful and glorious kingdom. We live in the days to where we are sharing hope. We are sounding the trumpet of salvation. But listen to what Jesus says. He says in verse number 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, talking about the desecration of the temple, listen to what Jesus said, spoken of by the Daniel the prophet. Wait a minute. If Antiochus Epiphanes IV was the one that was the Antichrist, and that was where the desolation of abomination of desolation happened in the temple, why is Jesus saying that it's still yet to come? Because it didn't fully come, God gave Daniel a forewarning and a foreshock of the actual earthquake that would take place someday. He said, when you see this happen, he said, stand in the holy place. Stand in the holy place. And whoso reads these things, let him understand. And some people today still don't understand this because here's the problem. We're going to wrap up real quick. Here's the problem. We're looking at government. We're looking at Congress. We're looking at American society. We're looking at the ways of the world to where people go into businesses, shoot each other up. People go to the hospital and have babies ripped out of the womb, shred into pieces, broken up into pieces. We look at all of that stuff, and we're expecting to find God in all of that. And you won't find God in the sinfulness of the world. You won't. We're trying to make this into something better. We're trying to create scapegoats that when this does happen, we can get ourselves out of it, and we can't. Because this person that comes on the scene that our world is ready for right now will not come in his own power, but he will come with the full force of Satan. And Jesus warns them again. But let me share something with you. This world's not going to get it. So you need to stop trying to find all of the answers out there in the world. And you need to understand this. When all this stuff comes to pass, I've heard people say this, God's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because of all the sin that we're in. No. God doesn't have to apologize for anything. The problem is this, is that even many Christians today are not reading their Bibles fully, correctly the problem lies within this if you read all of the studies of the Old Testament uh, Israelites and you read the studies in the scriptures of the New Testament church it's when the church forgets God that he sends judgment it's when the church turns away from him that he sends his son it's when he's had enough of people who say they're of God and they don't live that way, that he sent the Babylonians, that he sent the Medes and the Persians, that he sent the Grecians, and that he sent the Romans to judge them, to whip them, to chastise them, them to think they want that, but really what they need is God. And listen, Jesus walks into the temple one day, and in Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 18, He steps out on that scene that morning. He's looking around, and he's crying. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, how many times I'd have gathered you up like a mother hen would gather their children or chicks, and you wouldn't let me. Jesus walks into the temple that day, and he says, behold, your, your house is left desolate. When you see the abomination of desecration, when you see the house of God being desolate, let me share something with you before we go. <clears throat> when the world is no longer immune to sin, and they get used to seeing sodomy, rape, 
aborted murder, all these things. That's one thing. But when you as the church gets used to seeing this, and it no longer stirs you or moves you to repentance, that's a total different thing. We don't want our house, the house of God, the temple of God, the body of Christ, to be in that place that the Israelite temple was to where they were desolate. They were without God. Because why? They didn't want him. Listen, the Bible says that they're going to turn and they're going to worship this beast and this false dragon. You can see it in Romans chapter, I mean, excuse me, Revelation chapter number 13. You will see this. And these are tremors before the actual thing takes place. And I want you to see what happened to Daniel. The purpose of this vision. Why did God give this to Daniel? Why did God give it to him and then tell him to shut the book up, shut the vision up? Why did God do that? Why did God give it to faithful Daniel? Look at what it says in verse 27. It says, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for certain days. He said, and afterward I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Daniel, it it, it, it took so much control over him that he got sick. For certain days it bothered him. But look with me at that portion of Scripture. It says, but afterwards he arose up and he did the king's business. He, He allowed this pain of this vision and the pain and the purpose of what God was going to do. It burdened him, but he still had to go about the king's business. Now, whether that is speaking about the king of Media or Persia and Cyrus or, or whatever, we don't know. He went about doing everything that he did every day. But I can tell you what it means to you and I today is that we need to continue on the king's business. But Steve, this world's getting bad. This world's just, everything's bad. What do we do? What do we do? We, we go about the king's business. We keep sharing the gospel. We keep preaching the truth. Listen, he says, I was astonished at the vision. And he said, and none other understood all of these things. Let me share something with you before we close. I read an article, I read a story about this guy. His name's Carl McNunn. You can do your research on him. When I read this story, I literally picked it up and I went, there's no way that this story is true. There's absolutely no way. This is the craziest story I've ever heard. But in 1981, Carl McNunn was a a photographer. He was a wilderness kind of guy. He liked to be outdoors. Uh, He was the guy that took backpacks and tents and just went out into the woods and would stay out there for days and days, if not months. Carl McNunn had this big dream that he was wanting to go to remote areas of Alaska, places that really had not truly been uncovered, discovered. He was going to go out there, and he wanted to get all of these photographs, all of this film. He, he, he had it in his mind that he was going to take all of his provisions. He was going to get a bunch of food and do all these things. And so what Carl did, and I'll, and I'll wrap it up real quick. I know you've been with me for a while, but he went and hired an Alaskan bush plane pilot, an uh, Alaskan bush pilot. He said, I'll pay for you. I'll pay for your repairs on your airplane. The man, his plane was in a mess and all that. He said, I'll pay for all of that if you fix it. He said, if, when it's fixed, you'll fly me out and that you'll drop me off at this place. And he said, absolutely. He made the agreement to do that. Uh, Carl got 1,400 pounds in food and provisions. He got shotgun shells, rifle shells. He got his guns all in order. I can't remember if it was like 300 rolls of film or whatever it was, but he got all this stuff together, and there they go. They're flying out. He had gotten with uh, state troopers, uh, excuse me, not troopers, but... um, uh, foresters, rangers, and all of those people ahead of time. They knew where he was going to be at, all of this stuff. He told his dad where he was going and doing all these things. They, he flies him out and drops him off in the springtime. And this man goes out taking photographs. He's doing all this. He uses a lot of his shotgun shells to, to start fires and wastes a lot of them. And all of a sudden, this guy, the story changes in August he realizes one thing. He's writing in his diary, and he realizes one thing, and he's writing these words. Oh, how foolish I am. I made all these provisions to get here, and I've told no one to return and to get me. He made every plan and every step to go there, do all of this stuff, and then even thought some of the things that he really needed were not very needful, and he wasted them. 
And so for the next days, he literally tried to catch game, tried to catch food. He used up his, his shells, did all of these things. He, he used up his uh, uh, ammunition, <clears throat> everything. He ha- and he, he's now writing his last words. And some of you are thinking, why didn't they go back and get him? The, the Alaskan pilot, he went and got another job. He said, I didn't know. He said, he never, ever made arrangements for me to ever come back and pick him up. He never said anything about that. Some of you think, well, why didn't his dad get people to go? Because on a previous excursion, his dad was worried about him. He called the rangers, called others. They sent out search crews and all this other stuff. And his son, Carl, got mad at him and said, don't ever do that to me again, Dad. You've embarrassed me. Don't do that again to me. I am okay. And now he's writing in his journal, I know my father will not come and look for me. Because of why? Because he told him never to do that. This man is stranded out there and never made any kind of plans to get out. And you know what? Regardless if you want to hear me or not, regardless if you've stayed this long in the portion of the message, it doesn't matter. My job, my life is centered around telling you to get ready. Asking you, do you need a way out? Because if you need a way out, I know a way out. He'll come in and he'll save you, and it's Jesus Christ. Listen to me. You can't make all these provisions for everything down here and just enjoy it and never make provision for what's going to happen after our lives are over with. This is temporary. This is like taking pictures of a bunch of things, and it's temporary. And it's someday they're going to put you in a casket, and all those pictures you took are going to be surrounding your casket or projected up on some kind of screen somewhere in a funeral home. But what matters is if you've made provisions, if you've listened to the precursors and the foreshocks of what is coming to take place. Because I'm telling you, Jesus is coming. People get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had together. And I ask you, God, to please speak to us. Please speak to the people that have heard this message. Please help us, Lord, to prepare our hearts and our lives to be ready to meet you. That we can't just think that, oh, how beautiful this temporary thing is. But, Lord, we must be ready to meet you. As you said in the scriptures, prepare to meet thy God. Lord, we know that there is a lot of evil that's coming someday. There is an evil one called the Antichrist that will rise on the scene. But, Lord, you've promised us in the church and in the New Testament That we will not be the children of darkness, but we're the children of light. That we will not be taken by this as though it's some surprise. But yet we will be caught away in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And we will be with you. And we will comfort, Lord, each other with these words that we have. Lord, thank you for the time we've had in your word today. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ we've asked all these things. Thank you for our hope. Amen.